Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Taylor. Taylor Patrice is the writer and podcaster behind the Policy Out Loud blog and podcast. It is her mission to make policy one of the greatest forces in creating and solving problems in the world around us. More accessible to the average reader and listener who want to care about the world and want to solve its problems. I was like, oh, there's commas there. Okay, I missed the comment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's okay sometimes uh, I write <laughs> I yeah think, so it's, it's okay. but but people don't it, it's the whole point is people don't know where to start and that's what you're focusing on she works to unpack social political economic and environmental issues by discussing them in terms of domestic and foreign policy Taylor is determined to change the world one policy solution at a time cares to incorporate both head and the heart in her work loves mac and cheese and dirty martinis and has dubbed herself politics cool auntie auntie i say auntie but other people say auntie where i'm from we use aunt <laughs> and i get picked on yeah. about it and i'm like i'm, I'm from canada practically leave me alone <laughs> where i'm from it's auntie too and i was told i had to drop that slogan but the thing is is i'm like but I like it. So it's sticking. <laughs> it's, I like it too. What it is. Well, welcome to the <laughs> podcast, Taylor. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, well, I would love, I mean, your bio pretty much said it is you're into, you know, po- politics, you know, political policy. And I would love for you to start us on your journey to going there because you're, you're young. Like we're not talking to you're, we're not talking to somebody who's like in their fifties, who's been around a while. Like where did your interest, usually when I think of politicians, it's generally older people because that's the majority of people are really. Because it's the majority representative. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, where did your interest in, you know, political policy begin? So my interest in policy, um, I kind of talk about this a little bit on my podcast. And so for anyone that's like listening to both, I don't want to be super redundant, but I got, I I didn't realize I was interested in policy from a really young age because I didn't have the language to identify that that's what my interest was. And so when I went to, when I went on to college, I mean, this, like I, where, oh, let's back this story up a little bit because it's like a truer story. So when I was in high school, um, I actually got expelled. Uh, from high school, which was like a crazy thing because I was a 4.0 student, like graduated top of my class. Like I I was doing really well and uh, I got bullied so bad that somebody laced my water bottle and long story short, the administration thought I had drugged myself at school on purpose, even though I got to the ER. Yeah. It was stupid, crazy. Um, I eventually got myself back into school because I like marched my happy little young ass in and was like, this is the motherfucking policy and you didn't follow it and you expelled me. And also that's like, do you know what was in my system? It was a date rape drug. Um, 
And so like got, I looped in a bunch of people and they were like, okay, come back to school. And I was like, haha, never mind. I'm going to college. Like I went back to high school for one day. I wanted to prove to myself that I could get back in. Like I wanted to deal with that because I had such like low self-esteem at that time because it was a group of girls that had done this to me mm-hmm. and they were trying to get me in trouble and I was very bullied and I just, I never really fit in. Like mm-hmm. I, God, when I was young, we all wanted to, like I tried so dang yeah, hard, but me too. It just, <laughs> we, we've all been there. So many of our listeners, even the people that were like, quote unquote, the cool kids, I don't think anyone ever felt yeah. like they fit in. So, um, but in that time, I, when I went and started college, I started at the community college, um, with a running start program and started accumulating some of my college courses. And in my spare time, I started volunteering with a bunch of organizations in the Seattle area. Um, I became really passionate about women's issues, um, and, and various community issues and education issues. And so I went and volunteered with a bunch of different organizations. And then I eventually went on to university and I did the same thing in university is I, I put myself through school. I did a ton of volunteering and I was one of those people who again, walked out of college and I had this skill set, and I knew that my skill set was people. Like I, you know, I love to write. I love people. And I've always loved to be thrown into like difficult people, like people who are struggling that's my thing. Like if you're, um, if, if your journey has in any way been like hard or if you're combative, combative or you're mouthy, like you're going to be my people. <laughs> so I walked out of college. With a, I'll tell you a story. I got into social work later and man, I had a chair thrown at my head once. I loved it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. Um, <laughs> But um, I walked out of college and I had all of these degrees and all of these minors and I had really no idea what I wanted out of life. I just knew that I wanted to work with people, but I had walked out of school thinking to myself, like the only way I'm going to be able to feed myself is if I go to corporate America and if I kind of learn to exercise that skill, but that's not who I am. Like, that's not how I'm wired. I'm wired to work with people. And so kind of in this transition from university into adult life, it just so happened that I fell in love with my, my now partner and, um, and he joined active duty military. And so <laughs> it was a couple of years, God, active duty military. If your listeners could hear, see my face right now, they could hear my face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an expression all its own. Um, but we, he went into active duty military, we got married and we started moving around the country. And I was still kind of faced with this, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Um, and we had added this extra layer of, okay, now you're, now you're moving. Like I, I hadn't even really established myself yet. And now we're moving across the country into various areas. And one of the downsides of military life, especially for military spouses, is difficulty in finding work. And so in that process of trying to find work, I did a lot of volunteer work. I continued to kind of like lean into parts of the community that were new to me, foreign to me, walks of life that weren't necessarily my own, just because I love to dig my hands into the dirt next to other people. Like, I think that's what our calling, all of our calling in life is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so... In moving around the country, I I did a lot of volunteer work down in the South and then again in the Midwest. I eventually took up a job in child abuse and neglect advocacy in the Midwest, Um, thus the chair. Um, (laughs) But 
um, as I was kind of transitioning through military life, what I figured out was that my skill with people and loving on people and getting invested in parts of the community that were being underserved was something that I genuinely loved. And it was actually a skill that I had. It wasn't just one of those things where it was like, oh, everybody's good at people. Like, you know, some people just not everybody is with good it. at people. Not everybody's good with people. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone is good with people. It's was it's something that I've learned over the years where there's been a few situations where I'm like, well, that was publicly appalling. I'm better at people than you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I came to realize that some of the things that I was looking at, you know, especially when I had moved from the West Coast, a part of the country that um, mindset I was very familiar with, a place that I was really entrenched and very invested. When we moved a couple of times with the military, I honestly was terrified to move because I was like, man, the South is going to be the South because I knew what I had seen on the news and the Midwest is going to be the Midwest because of what I'd seen on the news. And I know what their voting patterns are. And I know what the stereotypes are. And I know, like, I know these things and I don't know that I'm going to fit in because I don't know that what they're doing aligns with my values. And so then I moved and I started volunteering and I got my hands invested in the community and came to, came to find that, um, I had gone with a lot of judgment. And as I was working alongside people in the community who were underserved, I found that the communities themselves actually shared in a lot of the values that I I had. It was just that their proximity to resources, their what type of industry was in the area, what their primary problem was as shaped by things like the environment and education, their primary problems were different. So it wasn't that they didn't care about some of the primary problems that I was familiar with from where I'm from, It's that that couldn't be their primary problem or the way they were attacking that primary problem was different based on resources and based on education and based on local government. Um, And so I began to look at this stuff sort of curiously because what I began to see was that people weren't necessarily, we're all kind of up against this system that enables us or disables us from becoming the person that we want to become. And I began to be be very curious about how how the system plays into this. And I think the biggest, the point at which I said, oh, there's a word for this and it's policy was when I was working in child abuse and neglect advocacy out in the Midwest. And I really want to caveat like child abuse and neglect is a countrywide issue. So I really don't want to like pigeonhole the Midwest as like Mm -hmm. as a place for it because it exists everywhere. Um, but it just so happened that I was working in this, in this area of life in the Midwest. Um, but I was working in this area and I, I was hearing the same story from the people that were involved with the system within which I was working over and over and over again. And I sat there curiously and was like, there's a pattern, meaning there's an epidemic, meaning that we can look at this differently. We can begin to solve the problems differently. And so as I became curious, as people were telling me their story and involving me in the most intimate, raw, horrifying parts of their life, I began to think curiously about, wait a second, system representation doesn't exist for these people. The system's not putting money into this. How do we begin to look at these problems from a policy perspective? But then I realized, oh my gosh, like we don't have a lot of language around this because if I looked at the person I was five years prior to doing this job, I would have just assumed like, oh, it's Midwest, like, Mm -hmm. oh, like 
I would have just like pigeonholed these people when in reality, we just didn't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of language around solution oriented thinking because so much of our political conversation is so divisive. Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't Um, know if I answered your question fully. You did. (laughs) Yes. Answered it. Uh, no. Uh, so my interest is mental health stigma from a social aspect, not from a clinical aspect. Uh, cause I feel like clinical, like box it, boxes it in and is like, it's a people problem, right? It's not like, uh, Oh, like we can figure this out by like giving you this sterile information. Um, and when I wrote a paper in my associate's degree, about the barriers to mental health, it was affordability, access, and stigma. And I'm like, how, like, I'm not a policy person, but I know that there needs to be policies that account for the accessibility and the affordability, right? Um, universal health care, that can help with the, the affordability. Like a lot of, Absolutely. Uh, a lot of uh, health insurance policies don't cover it. Or if they do cover it, they cover a very small percentage of it. Uh, I know it is a complete privilege that I have a health insurance that covers both my therapist and my psychiatrist, and I don't pay a copay. And that's great for me. And they cover my meds, um, which my bipolar medication, which makes it really easy. But then when we talk about accessibility, how can we create policies that encourage people to move to these places so people have access? So like that is a policy thing. That's a policy thing. And that's what I I thought of when you were talking about these policies that need to be in place to, you know, really address these, these people problems, these problems that people deal with. Absolutely. And these, you know, I think when we think about policy, we oftentimes think of this like big unattainable thing. But I think when we get down to the nitty gritty of like policy being the how in society, we all have a relationship with the system that's in place that we know isn't working. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are all shouldering the burden of a broken system in a way that exhausts us. And I think one of the big problems, I mean, a lot of this comes back to language and so many issues come back to our use of language. And that's like its own little rabbit hole. But one of the reasons why I really wanted to get this platform off the ground is so I'm, I'm a woman with a master's degree and an above average vocabulary that I can use very quickly. And the average reading level in the United States is a seventh grade reading level. Now there's times where I turn on the news and I look at the news and I look at politicians speaking, or I look at like op-ed people speaking or leaders speaking. And I think to myself, what the fuck are you saying? Like, I do not, I don't understand what you're saying. And if as a person with a master's degree who focuses on policy, sometimes can't understand what is happening in front of my face, the average American who has a seventh grade reading level, which I'm by no means shaming, there's right. there's no criticism there, just taking like a very hard look at where we're at. If I can't, if I'm struggling with it, how do, does our average American interact with policy? And so what I want to do is find a way to make policy comprehensible because you have an experience with policy. Mm-hmm. I have an experience with policy. All of your listeners have an experience with policy, but the language around policy is so inaccessible that it actually makes it harder to, in, to, in, to bring in 
representation because the people who could represent their walk in life can't even touch the policy language yeah. because the people who are speaking policy and the people who are shouldering the burden of policy are two different people. And so how do we bridge that gap in language so that someone like you, who is, you know, taking on some of these mental health issues, how can you be a better advocate within our system for the people who need better access to, to comprehensive health care? How can I, as someone who's really passionate about women's issues, attack this if I can't even understand what our leaders are saying? Because it's not representative language. Mm-hmm. It's language that's so large and lacks so much inclusivity and lacks so much representation that people don't believe that they even have a shot at changing the system, which they're they're shouldering the burden of. Yeah. Well, honestly, I read an article that one of the reasons so many people were drawn to President Trump people know how I feel about him, but anyways, um, was the use of language. Yeah. The use of language, because he was speaking at an average of fifth grade level. So Mm -hmm. people could understand him. And even if he was bullshitting, (laughs) they could understand what he was saying. Right. And so they were drawn to him because they're like, of all these politicians who speak these big, broad things that I don't understand this guy's breaking it down to my level. And that's why uh, the he's, a per- read- he's a person of the people. Yes. He had a populist approach and it works. I mean, like good, bad, or indifferent because it's, it's not an uncommon approach on a global scale. We've seen populists emerge from all over the world, but it works. Mm-hmm. And it's because he's a leader who has, who has positioned himself as a person of the people. And, and that is a very um, effective power gaining tactic um, because good leadership generally um, it, it articulates as a, itself as a problem solver. They articulate themselves from a lack of ideology. Oftentimes they remove themselves from like very strict ideologies. Now, President Trump, <laughs> maybe not a great example of that. Well, um, in the very beginning, there, there, he did separate himself. Then he did separate himself. <laughs> Then it went to a whole other level, but you know, <laughs> right. Um, but they're, they're forward thinking and they position themselves as people of the people. And so it works. Um, and so, and I, I think, you know, as a person who's, you know, I look at this and I think to myself, like, what are my long-term goals? And maybe eventually getting into politics is a thing, like if, if it works, but right now, I love the opportunity to talk about policy because I want to enable other people to be able to better attack the system within which they mm-hmm. live. Because I think one of the big problems that we have, and like I, as a person who's like positioned myself in such a way that I'm trying actually to avoid politics, even when policy is so political. Yeah. We have so much people literally don't know what's happening around them because there are mm-hmm. so many laws and regulations and pages and documents in place that people don't even know how to operate in the system around them. So how do we bring that power back to the people? People need understanding. You know, I think we have politicians who are where they are because they care about the people, they care to do right by the people. And then I think we have politicians that don't. Um, And how do we regain our power as people by, and, and I think that's done through 
having a better understanding of how we are related to the system and how we leverage our own knowledge and our own participation. And I think, especially after looking at politics for the last several years, that's a really disheartening thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And we've had a couple people on the podcast who've, who are part of ad, their advocates, but because they were advocates and they were passionate, they went on to work in policy in a way. Um, so we had one who it was about disability, right? Um, Mm -hmm. she has some like neurodivergent, like disabilities. And then, um, I want to say her son had some disabilities and she was sick, like sick, sick and tired of like the crap, right? She's like, why can't this be done? It's very simple. And she like went to, she even went to like Congress and like all these things to change all of these like make policy change happen. Well, recently we had another advocate on and she works with a bunch of organizations to change these policies to help um, accomplish the things she needs, right? So either on a state level or federal level. And I think a lot of times people focus on the federal when really what's, I mean, really what's impacting your daily life is the state level. Like is the state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. The federal impacts you, but like So the federal, I think of as the broad, like the baseline of what, what's supposed to happen, right? You can't get below, well, you're not supposed to be able to get below the baseline. Um, But the states, they can make it stricter, right? Or they can offer more protection. So I think- Or they can change the funding structure. Yeah. I think of like, so I think West Virginia, the minimum wage is like $8 an hour or something, here in Connecticut, it's like $14 an hour. Like you just think of like state, that's just, that's just the pay on a state level, like, and the difference. And yes, I understand the cost of living in different states is different, but if you look at those kind of things, there's differences amongst the states on like your protections and what kind of access you have. And here in Connecticut, we have a phone number you can call if you're having a mental health crisis. It's not a suicide hotline. It is, we will send somebody to your house, a mental health professional right. to help you. Not all states have that. Right. Like, so no. it's, it's just that kind of thing where people need to think people are focusing on the federal and not really seeing what's going on in their states. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that kind of getting back to, to state what's happening in your state I'm a big believer that the power is best held at the lowest level because the lowest level of power is going to have the greatest amount of representation. Um, And, you know, especially when we look at politics today, the language is extremely divisive and that's a way of garnering, garnishing, garnering, gaining, (laughs) gaining support, but it's extremely distracting. And the thing is, is we're getting so distracted as people about issues that do actually have a lot of research behind them. And like, I'm going to get, take it, leave it, keep it, cut it. However we go about this a little inflammatory here, but like one example is what's going on in Texas right now with the new Mm -hmm. abortion. That's what I was thinking Um, of actually when I was talking. (laughs) Someone's going to get mad. Um, But it's so, it's so fascinating to me, especially as a person who has like, We talked about abortion okay. on the podcast before we shared stories. So it's not a new topic. Okay. <laughs> this is not a new topic. 
when we talk about abortion, the most common conversation that we're seeing is, is it moral? Is it right? Do I have a right to my body? And I have big opinions about that. I really do. Like I, that soapbox is one upon which I love to stand, but like, let's put my soapbox aside for a second. It's fascinating to me that the argument is a moral argument. Because the thing is, is when you look at the people who stand on the pro-life side and you look at the people who stand on the pro-choice side, more often than not, when you hear people speak like, yeah, you're going to have people that like have the moral argument and there's going to be no swaying them. But I think anyone that sits on whatever side of the aisle they sit on on this issue, most people will say they'd like to see abortions reduced. You know, we, we don't want to see a ton of them. We believe some people believe in having access. Some people believe in restricting access. But if the end goal is to reduce abortions, it does not make sense to take away abortion services because historically what we know is that when we restrict abortions, abortions actually increase. They go underground, they become less safe, and they actually increase because the same pot of money that funds abortion services is the same pot of money that funds family planning services. And when we have family planning services, we have less abortions, but when one goes away, so does the other. And so what we know, especially when you look at from like the late 1800s to the mid 1900s, when abortions were illegal or very hard to access, there was actually way more abortions than when they became accessible to people. And so if the end goal is to reduce abortion, then it makes sense to make them accessible. And so it's fascinating to me that so much of our policy has become such, such an inflammatory emotional argument when there really is a way for everybody to be happy. Mm -hmm. But too many people are too focused on controlling the morality when in reality, if we looked at what the common goal was, we'd have the outcome that we all kind of want. Right. It drives me we're nuts. Not- it drives me, sorry for interrupting. It drives no, me it's okay. nuts you're good. That on the line that you're talking about is that people are only focusing on abortion. There are so many things that we can implement that the same, many of the same pro-life people I see are against that could actually reduce abortion. Comprehensive sex education in high school has been proven to reduce unplanned pregnancies, thus reducing abortion, Right. Universal healthcare right. in other countries has shown to reduce abortion because what is somebody thinking? They're thinking, if I have the kid, this kid, I don't have insurance. I'm going to be smacked with a freaking tens of thousands of dollars in money just to right. have this child. Right. Um, right. You know, supporting like social services when it comes to like SNAP benefits and stuff like that. Again, on the thought of if I can't afford to feed this child how can i have this child and people try to say these oh the simple solution is adoption do you know how many kids are in the system right now like a ridiculous amount Mm -hmm. and they make it more difficult again another policy preventing lgbtq individuals from adopting yeah that to me is so crazy that to me that Oh, that one would become a soapbox issue for me. Yeah. So like (laughs) my came from that sort of advocacy work, that is like, a yeah, well, my point is, is there's so many paid maternal leave. I could go on and on about the policies that could be put in place that reduce abortions, but people want to argue. They only want to focus on outlawing abortion and not how to reduce them by other policies. And actually a lot of pro-life people 
are against the other policies. <laughs> right. So I'm like, what, what, what is your point here? What do you want? Like you, you're not going to get what you want just by outlawing abortion. It's not going to happen. Right. And so it's like, how do we begin to frame conversations around very human issues that we're all facing? You know, I understand focusing on the morality issue is a very good way of dividing the people. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, gaining, gaining, following, gaining money, gaining, gaining just blood pressure behind that sort of endorsement from people. But there is a way to talk about these issues without focusing on what side of the aisle we sit on in how we actually address these human issues. And I think, you know, the aisle and trust me, like I have my own political affiliations too, but in seeing the direction our country is going and how people are digging their feet in to be us against them. It's so discouraging when I genuinely believe that there is a way to have the conversation about policy and what we are doing and how we are doing it in such a way that people are encouraged to participate in their, in their local community to be effective in what they're doing. I genuinely believe people want to do good like yeah. I genuinely believe people want to make a difference. So how do we empower them to do that? We make, we make the language around complex issues that directly affect their life more accessible so that they can, so that they can participate. Right. And I, when, when I started this, I looked for like resource after resource after resource and I couldn't find it. And so, yeah. No, I mean, I that's, agree. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. Nothing gets done when it's this big pissing match. Uh, uh, Amongst the two parties, which drives me nuts that we are a two-party system. <laughs> That's a whole other ballgame. Oh, I know. Like, like the Demo- Democratic Party is like two to three parties in one. <laughs> you right. know? Right. But like, right. It, there's a common ground that can be found amongst these issues. And the problem that we're having right now, especially in the federal level, not as much on the state level, I mean, in some states, in my state, that it's not as much a, on a state level, um, is nothing's getting done because it's like, they're wrong. They're against me. They're wrong. They're against me. I'm right. going to vote against everything they're for just because they're, they're the other. Yeah. Um, we talk about, I'm going to assert my power. Yeah. We talk about the other in social psychology and how, when you get really like, like really attached to these identities, you will like literally downplay everything you learn that pushes against your belief. You will ignore it. You will like, you will The psychology of bias is fascinating. Oh yes. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me excited. Um, But yeah, we have that. We're dealing with that right now in the federal government is like nothing's getting done because it's just this big pissing match amongst the parties. Right. Like, um, and and I'm sure, and I know in some States it's, different and in my state there's like one or two that are like very like I'm this party I'm gonna vote along the party lines I'm not gonna help anybody but for the most part it's a lot of like how can we work together to figure this out and when you get on the very like very local level like my town we had a bipartisan unanimous vote for masks in schools for COVID And mind you, the board 
of education is majority Republican in my town. Like, so they have it set up. So the board of education, at least three of the members have to be of the minority party. So whatever party is not like holding the rest of the seats. Right. So you mm-hmm. always have to have like another party represented. You can't just be like, it's all one party. So when right. you get on the very local level, they're focusing, they're not focusing on party lines for the most part, at least in where I live, they're focusing on how can we help the community? So why are we like going up the chain and then finding like this big other pissing match? Like it makes no sense. How are we going to do anything for the people, the community, like the entire country or our entire local area, if we're not coming together to find common ground on policies? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, so much of that comes back to like, where is the power held? And I think that that's one reason that people should get more involved in their local politics. Because the thing is, is that that is where you're going to have the most stakeholder representation. And I believe, and I think most people believe this as well. So I don't think that this is any sort of like unique philosophy, but I believe that people have a fundamental right to self-determination and that self-determination needs representation within our within our system and that's going to be best represented and discussed at your local level and i think you know we've got so much discussion about and i think you know if if you go and google this i don't think you're going to find it but like when you look at like all of the headlines that we're seeing come across our news and what's happening in our country really what we're debating is the use of force and what is the appropriate use of force and how much power is held and by whom over whom And so when we're talking about how we want to participate within our societies, the best place we can do that is at the local level. You know, there's a lot of pieces that are really broken within our system. And of all the soapboxes on the shelves that I can pull out, I love that one too. (laughs) But when we talk about the system the way it is, we have to, we have to be pragmatic and kind of attack it from the way, from where it currently stands. And how do we do that? We get involved. And the local level is the best place that we can do that. But you have to understand what's going on, which is the whole point of what we were talking about with your journey and what you're doing and what your interests are is to break things down so people can understand them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and that's where it's this like pivoting kind of back to um, kind of this particular platform is trying to make all of those conversations more accessible, you know, talking about like, how do we, how do we address things like the abortion conversation you know, some of these conversations are really uncomfortable. They're really taboo. They're really inflammatory and they're really like blood pressure But how do we begin to talk about these in such a way that we can understand? Because when we look at the entire comprehensive system from the top to the bottom, you know, having the understanding of the language that's happening at the very top is important so that we are empowered to participate in our lower levels. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we like, we kind of like rabbit hold off into like participatory, like, Oh yeah. Stuff. This is how <laughs> it goes in this podcast. We rabbit hole everywhere. Oh, That's <laughs> how it rolls. But like how having the language around, you know, I, I think we have our left and we have our right and we have our extremists in kind of all different directions, but most of us are like, most of us are hovering somewhere in the middle where we're like, look, yo, I like kind of sit with this group, but I see what you're saying can we have a conversation about this oh no okay fine like and then we we all get a little like tense but I think most of us are sitting pretty close to the aisle and we're like wanting to understand and we want to participate but we just don't have the language around it because 
that power is held in another sphere. And so how do we, how do we best understand it so that we can approach problems in our local communities when we vote? Like, it's insane to me. It's insane to me during voter season when people are telling me who they're voting for. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because of this one thing, this one thing. And I'm like, but the rest of their policies, but the rest of their policies. And they're like, I don't know what they are. (laughs) Okay. Okay. How about we talk about policy? Like, let's talk about how we begin to understand all of these issues and what this, and especially what the second and third order effects are going to be. Because we have a lot of policies, I think, that are written by people in positions of power who the policy is well-intended. Not all of them. Let me start with some of them are very (laughs) just like they're lobbied and they've got special interest groups who benefit from however this policy is written. So, you know, I say that with like a strong caveat, but there are policies that are written that are attempting to address the problem, but they're written at such a high level that there's no stakeholder participation. And then when that policy trickles down to the very bottom, the people that are shouldering the burden of the broken policy aren't the people that actually wrote the policy. Mm -hmm. And so there are policies out there that are written to do good, but the second and third order effects weren't calculated for because it didn't have that sort of stakeholder representation. It didn't consider things like, okay, well, if we change this tax policy, it's going to put a strain on our healthcare. Or if we, you know, start making this available, how do we fund this? Like it's, it's so interconnected. And so how how do we begin to not only dissect it because it's such a complex living system, but how do we begin to dissect it in such a way that is accessible to people so that people can participate in this, you know, living system? Yeah, that makes uh, total sense. Uh, I listened to a couple of podcasts, a political podcast, and sometimes I start talking. It's not, I mean, none of the ones I listen to are like super like above your head. But I'm just like, oh, my gosh, there's so much like into this. It's not just like black or white, like thinking there's so much gray area. And if this happens, then that's that's not going to happen. If this happens, that's going to be affected. I'm like, oh, my gosh, just so overwhelming. <laughs> like It's so much. Yeah. Um, but yeah. as we wrap up the podcast today, Taylor, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? There is a statistically significant body of people who are not voting. Stop it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a lot of things I want to leave listeners with. I think that that's my biggest, um, you know, like I could plug my own shit, but really just go vote when you have the opportunity to vote that affects policy. And like, re- like take the time to like know your candidates. Like there's always going to be, I, I literally am someone who's like trying to position myself as someone who doesn't talk about politics. And now I'm talking about politics. So, <laughs> you know, flip side, but like know the policies. <laughs> yeah, no, truth. it's all interwoven. For this real. Is, I but- had a, a friend of mine um, ask me on Facebook in a com. we were going back and forth in the comment section. And she said, why don't people vote for individuals instead of parties? And I said, let me break it down this way. There is a party that is pretty much against everything I stand for. I mean, there, I mean, I, I, there's exceptions, right? But pretty much as a party, there's a party that's pretty much for 
everything I stand for. I'm more likely to vote for a candidate that's going to get that, that that party's policies passed than the other. So like Trump and Biden. <laughs> Trump stood for pretty much everything I, I'm against, right? And Biden is a representative of a, of a party that stands for pretty much everything that I'm for. So I voted for Biden, even though I don't like him. I still don't like him. I still like don't like half the shit he does. But I like I, I agree with him more than I do. I did Trump. Right. So like when it comes down to that, sometimes we're not voting for individuals because we just don't like either one. <laughs> but we're going to vote for the party that most represents our values. That, yeah, moves your margin closer to whatever it is your perception of a best life for people is. Yes. Which if we could split these two parties into like multiple parties, then I would not be specifically in the Democrat party. I, I identify more as a progressive. So, and I feel like- There's a lot. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, really there is a lot of parties, but we have two because where the money flows, but, um, but yeah, yeah I, vote for the policies you know, or vote for the person that will get you closest to the policies you want. Yeah. That's, that was my point in that. <laughs> oh no, I, I was tracking. I, okay, good. <laughs> I see you. No, I was, I'm, no, I'm following you. Um, I'm like, my brain has now jumped over to like last thing that I could like leave people with. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my, my brain's squirrel syndroming over here. Okay. Um, I think aside from that, um, to the best of our ability, I think that the best thing that we can do for our neighbor and for our community is to begin to understand our neighbor and our community. I think that the, the biggest takeaway that I got in the journey of trying to get this platform up off the ground was to step outside of myself and my understanding about other people in the reflection of how I saw myself. Like I was seeing other people in relationship to how I saw myself. I learned how to step back and look at communities as whole functioning living systems. And in that I also began to see the people differently as their own functioning organisms. And how do we, how do we do what's right for our neighbor? We begin to let them speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that when people are allowed to speak their needs and speak um, their journey, we have better policies that are developed within our system. And I think that that's significant because as we've talked about on this podcast, everything is so interconnected that we can't attack the entire system at once. But if we can begin to see problem A, like I'm being handsy over here, so your, your listeners can't see it, but we've got problem A and we've got problem B and we've got problem C and they all relate to one another. If we know that A, B, and C exist, then we can attack A, B, and C altogether. But when we don't know that problem D exists, we address problem A, B, and C, and it affects problem D, a problem that we didn't even know about because it didn't have representation. So getting to know your neighbor and what they're saying about their journey in life is significant to the policies that we create in other areas because of its living sort of system. And so seeing people how they want to be seen and using language that is inclusive and understanding of people's journey helps us to establish better policies and helps us to better understand the policies that are being established 
and how we shoulder the burden and how our neighbors shoulder the burden of those policies. Yeah. How those policies are written specifically with the language can really leave out certain groups of people and how they are worded. So absolutely. And it's, that's such a crazy thing to me because the thing is, is like, what are we, if we're not our people? Like if at the end of the day, a document is written for the people and it excludes most of the people, then what are we doing? Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, This has been such a joy. Oh my gosh. Now all the things that I'm going to have to go like talk about in my head because we went so many different directions. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.